Our uh, text this morning is Psalm 131, which I'll read to you now. O Lord, my heart is not lifted high. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and behold the wonders of your law this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the uh, few sports that didn't go on hiatus over the summer when everything was going down is uh, mixed martial arts, of which I'm a big fan. I watch boxing occasionally as well sometimes. And if you're, if you're a fan of, of combat sports, you know that before a fight, uh, fighters will go through a, a training camp, which is extremely detailed. Uh, the camp is run with precision to ensure that the fighters peak in terms of their skill and their conditioning right at the time of the fight, not before, not after. Uh, training partners are flown in to uh, provide one uh, specialization, one skill that they can offer to help simulate the opponent. Nutritionists measure every meal and ensure that the fighter cuts weight precisely so that they're not too dehydrated by the time of the fight. And then the coaches and uh, trainers put together a, a game plan for the fighter to, to avoid the opponent's strengths and to maximize their own fighter's strengths. <clears throat> and then the big night of the fight comes and you step into the cage and despite all these careful preparations as uh, Mike Tyson famously stated everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth <laughs> uh, the military community has a similar similar analogy they say they say this, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Well, brothers and sisters, we've met the enemy, and his name is the year 2020. We've seen it all, haven't we? We've seen a pandemic shutting down our society. We've seen incidents of racial injustice causing mass protests and people coming to blows in the streets, two devastating hurricanes, and now we're in the midst of the most divisive election season that many of us can ever remember. I'm sure that we, many of us, made plans for this year that we've had to change. And we wonder, what is going on? And even beyond all these um, 
these big events in our lives that touch every one of us. Many of us come this morning bearing personal griefs and sorrows, losing loved ones recently, losing employment, struggling with depression. It might seem like the game plan that God has put together for this year is a bad one. Maybe it's time to take over. Maybe it's time to question whether God knows what he's doing or not. But I want to show you from the psalm that that's not so. That he hasn't forgotten his promises to us. That the Lord is full of steadfast love for us. And because of that, we ought to put our hope in him. I want to develop this thesis in two ways. First, I want to see that we put our hope in him by repenting of our pride. And second, we put our hope in him by resting in him as our father. And I'll conclude by showing how this psalm speaks of Jesus Christ, through whom the Lord has made us his children. So that's where we're headed. But first, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork and show you uh, a little bit of the context of this psalm. So Psalm 131 is part of a group of psalms that we call the Songs of Ascent. Your Bibles note that uh, it's, you know, there's a little inscription, a Song of Ascent. That's actually part of the inspired Hebrew text. also tells us that... Um, David is either the author or the figure to whom the author was inspired by. So the Songs of Ascents are associated with the annual pilgrimages that uh, the Jews would make um, to celebrate the religious festivals every year at the temple in Jerusalem. They are psalms that speak to pilgrims traveling through a desolate place, looking forward to their destination. And in particular, Psalm 131 ought to be considered in the context of the psalm that precedes it, Psalm 130, which we read uh, as part of our liturgy this morning. I'm not going to um, delve into it too deeply, but I just want to note in verse 7 in Psalm 130, we read, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. You'll notice that phrase is repeated exactly in Psalm uh, in Psalm 131, verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So I believe that in Psalm 130, the author is telling us why we ought to hope in the Lord. It's because with him we have steadfast love, and that he is always going to faithfully Love us no matter what. I think Psalm 131 is explaining the how after the psalm has the psalmist has explained the why in Psalm 130. How are we to put our hope in the Lord? The shift from the ground of our hope to the working out of our hope. So let's inspect it more closely. In verse 1 we read, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
The word translated, lifted up here, refers to placing our oneself above our station. It refers to pride, to choosing to do what is right in our own eyes rather than what is right in the eyes of God. In 2 Chronicles 32.24, we read an account of King Hezekiah, who, despite being one of the good kings, the righteous kings of Judah, he nevertheless fell prey to pride. The Lord had graciously saved him from an incurable illness, but he did not thank God for that. The text notes that Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was lifted up. See, we talk about lifting our hearts up to the Lord every morning uh, when we worship God, as we did this morning. And that is a way of acknowledging that God is above us, that we owe him everything. But when we lift up our hearts above God, then we are repeating the oldest sin in the book, literally. The sin that first originated with Satan, who wanted to consider himself above the Most High. So he fell from grace, and after falling, he then deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve. (coughs) He told them that they didn't have to obey God, that God was just trying to keep them down, and that if they took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil... They would be like God. The sin that began in their heart then manifested itself in their actions, and they ate. It's the oldest trick in the book. So the psalmist goes on to explain that his eyes are similarly not raised too high. This is a a common expression in the Old Testament. You can find it all over the place. And you can find it used for both good and evil intent. For example, in Psalm 123, verse 1, the psalmist writes, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So just as we can lift our hearts before the Lord in gratitude and humility, we can similarly lift our eyes to behold his glory, to see him reigning as king. However, if we neglect this, we will do what Proverbs thirty thirteen describes. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. See, lifting up our eyes and placing ourselves above God also causes us to place ourselves above our neighbors, to look down upon them, to take advantage of them, instead of honoring them for the image bearers of God that they are, we oppress them. These two statements then continue. The psalmist makes yet another parallel statement to culminate his thought in these actions. 
He says that I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The phrase that's translated here, occupy myself, literally means to walk. The psalmist here is saying that instead of going beyond his place, he's going to stay in his lane. He doesn't presume to tread upon God's territory. He doesn't presume to, to take what belongs to God alone. He doesn't spend his time contemplating things that are above his pay grade. He recognizes that he is a finite creature with limited faculties, unable to bear the weight of the things that belong to God alone. The word that's translated marvelous in the third line here is used in the Old Testament to describe God's power to do miraculous things, to do things that only God can do. In Exodus 3.20, God says to Moses that he is going to stretch out his hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders of the plagues. The same word is used there. In Exodus 34.10, God says to Israel, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels. The same word. Such as not having been created in all the earth or any nation. He's referring to not only striking Egypt with the plagues, but now he is going to drive out the Canaanites and deliver to Israel this pristine land, which they did not deserve, nor did they work for. Again, something only God could do. And in the Psalms, there are constant refrains to God's wondrous deeds. The psalmist call to mind over and over to remember God's mighty acts of redemption in the past in order to call them to repentance in the present and to call them to hope in the future. And finally, in the book of Job, perhaps this is the most um, poignant illustration from the Bible, we read this. Uh, to give a little context, we, you understand that Job has spent the whole book arguing that he has been cursed unjustly. And in a sense, he is, he is right, because God himself says in the beginning of the book that Job is righteous, and all the calamity that befalls him isn't because of anything that he did, not a sin that he committed. But yet, Job accuses God of being unjust and demands an audience with him. And at the end of the book, God grants him this audience. And God puts Job in his place. Where were you when I created the world? God asked Job. Where were you when I tamed Leviathan, when I created the heavens, when I laid the foundations of the earth? And at the end, Job confesses, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. It's the same word used there as in this psalm. See, there are certain things that we are not granted access to as creatures. There are certain things that belong to God alone. And perhaps David had some of these questions in his mind when he penned this psalm. 
Maybe it was during the time when he was on the run from Saul, when he was hiding in caves, uh, when he was fleeing from place to place, when he even had to take refuge with the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. God, you've anointed me and promised that you're going to make me king. Yet, it doesn't really seem like that's what's going on. Yet, when David had opportunities to take matters into his own hands, when Saul was laying helpless at his feet, he didn't kill him. He knew that it was not his place to bring about what God had promised. He understood that God had made a promise to him, and he trusted God to deliver on that promise, even if it didn't look likely. Or perhaps we can zoom out a bit and consider the vantage point of the Jews in exile after the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire. God, you've promised us that you'll never put out the lamp of David, that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. What is going on? Yet, they recited this psalm and took comfort and solace in the fact that God had made a promise, even if it didn't look like it was coming true at the time. See, when we are confronted with difficult times of suffering, our instinct is to second-guess God, to call Him onto the witness stand and to cross-examine Him, to wonder whether He is all-powerful and all-good and whether He loves us. Yet it's the very suffering, it's the very difficult times that actually reveal the sin in us, this pride. And we can easily apply this um, to our present time, can't we? As we've noted many times, it seems like this year has been written from a Stephen King novel. And I think in particular, it's the internet and, the, and social media that's made what's already there in our hearts that much more apparent. It's exacerbated our, our, our sin. It's made us narcissistic in thinking that we, everything is about us and our, it's our opinions that matter. It's, it's allowed us to think that we can actually be like God. What do I mean by that? Well, I think we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. See, we have access to all the sum of human knowledge now at our fingertips, anytime we want. We can reach into our cell phone, look something up. We get daily news streaming by the minute from all over the world. We can read instantly when there's been another tragedy, another tragic shooting, another riot, another political protest, another COVID outbreak in our schools. 
we have more knowledge about the universe and about um, the, the world than we've ever had before. There's, we've always, we've come to expect even, even in this, uh, in this pandemic, we, we, we just come to expect that the scientists are going to come up with a solution or a cure because the pace of innovation seems just inevitable. We're going to figure it all out. And we're constantly told that each one of us can make a difference, that um, our vote matters. We can do anything we put our minds to. We can solve all our problems if only we put the right plan together, put the right people in charge, put the right policies in place. We could fix all the injustice and the suffering and the tragedies. But none of this is true, is it? All this data that we have access to doesn't make us omniscient. It only makes us anxious and scared and constantly worrying about what's going to come next. All the time on social media doesn't actually inform us. It just divides us. No matter how we Zoom with our uh, co-workers or our children, Zoom with their schools, it's not that they can actually be in more than one place physically at a time. They can't actually be omnipresent like God is. It gives us this illusion of maintaining relationships over long distances, but in reality, we still grapple with loneliness and isolation. And I don't think you need me to tell you this, but both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are going to disappoint you. They are not going to be able to fulfill the expectations that we have placed on them to solve all of our problems because they're not God. We are not God. And God didn't intend for us to bear the burdens that he alone can bear. Christian, God is calling for you to give up your pride, to turn to him, to recognize that you are a finite creature and that that is a good thing. One theologian puts it this way, Divine mystery is not a sign of our failure in knowledge, but rather our success. Do you hear that? Divine mystery is not a sign of our failure in knowledge, but rather our success. We're trained in the exact opposite direction. If At my day job, if I tell my manager I don't know the answer to something, the next question is going to be, well, why don't you? Go find out. Yet the Christian recognizes that there are not answers to everything. And that that's okay. Our very creatureliness, the fact that we have limits on to our power and knowledge, is itself a gift, a good thing from God, 
for we have him to thank for creating us in the first place. The only one who does not have any limits is God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. See, we must leave the secret things to God, and we must exercise the responsibility that he has given us, namely to love him and to love our neighbor. <clears throat> to love our neighbors means to love the people that are actually within the spheres of our responsibilities rather than worrying about the people across the world or across the country doing something else that is against our preferences. How can we love our neighbors in our workplaces and our schools and on our streets? That's what we're called to. Don't let your outrage that's driven by the latest news headlines overwhelm you. Put your hope in the Lord. Bring it to him in prayer. And love your neighbors. Put your hope in the Lord by repenting of pride. Second, put your hope in the Lord by resting in him as your father. We've seen in the first half of the psalm a series of negative statements. Uh, what the psalmist said he's not going to do. He pivots and turns to what he is going to do instead. <clears throat> he's going to calm and quiet himself. He's going to recognize who God is and how God loves him. The psalmist uses striking imagery about God here that is enough to make us Presbyterians squirm in our seats. Well, maybe some of us. He uses this, the picture of a mother's love for her child to speak of God's love for him. And this picture is a universal picture of love that we all readily understand for all of us had mothers who loved us, or at least bore us. The picture of a mother's love is, is that of unconditional love. For what can a baby offer to his or her mother to repay this love? A baby can't do that. A baby can't do anything, actually, except cry and demand love and attention. I remember one uh, summer, my first job in high school, I was working at a pizza joint, and my manager was this uh, tough Indian American fellow, and he was a stickler for the rules, and when he thought that me and another guy were getting too chatty instead of answering the phones, he actually physically separated us, made sure we didn't work on the same shift. And I remember very vividly uh, something that he said to me. He said, the only free thing in this world is a mother's love. Not a father's love. He was an example of that, but a mother's love. 
But that is what grace is, free and undeserved. One commentator speculated that this psalm, that it may have been sung to calm crying babies as they were born in the arms of their mother on their way to Jerusalem. Picture that. What a, what a wonderful thing it is for a child, somebody who's powerless and weak, who is absolutely dependent upon their caregiver, to be so trusting that he is content in, their, in her arms. Christian spiritual maturity functions similarly. See, we might think that as we grow in grace, as we grow in maturity, that we'll depend on God less because we're getting stronger, more able to fend for ourselves. But that's actually not the case, is it? No, Christian spiritual maturity is realizing how much we need to depend on God and depending on him more and more, despite what the circumstances dictate. That he knows what's best for us. That he's always going to provide for us. And that we can trust him instead of questioning him. Yet all too often we revert to being spiritual babies. I know I do. We forget God's covenant love towards us, and we doubt that he's good and powerful. And it's during those times that we need to preach to ourselves once again the story of God's love for us. A couple months ago, there was an article that ran in The Atlantic uh, about the abandoned orphans of Romania. If you don't know, uh, 30 years ago during the communist era, the Romanian dictator decided that the country would be stronger if people had as many children as possible. So he uh, basically passed, uh, enacted policies to encourage people to have as many children as they could to the point where there were so many children that people just started abandoning them. People just started leaving them on the streets. An estimated 170,000 children were abandoned and left to these state-run orphanages to raise instead. And the conditions of these orphanages, as you might expect, were horrific. They were run like factories, literally assembly lines where babies were passed down from one station to the next. Babies with birth defects were deemed unworthy of care. Children were neglected routinely. One Western doctor writes this of his visit to Romania. He says, I walked into an institution in Bucharest one afternoon and there was a small child standing there sobbing. He was heartbroken and had wet his pants. I asked, what is going on with that child? A worker said, well, his mother abandoned him this morning. He's been like that all day. And that was it. No one comforted the little boy or picked him up. That was my introduction. The article goes on to describe the experience of a little boy who was finally adopted by the age of eight by a woman who 
worked at the institution, this little boy literally had never experienced human love before. And he and 30 years later, looking back on that first night where he got to sleep in his own bed in clean clothes with a good hot meal, he says this, when I stepped into Onisa's apartment, Onisa is the woman who adopted him, I could not believe how beautiful it was. The walls were covered with dark rugs and there was a picture of the Last Supper on one of them. And he goes on to recount the exact details of all the decorations in this woman's apartment. And 30 years later, unconsciously, he's decorated his own apartment down to the last detail the exact same way that he remembered in his mind. The memory of being welcomed for the first time is such a powerful one to him that he wants to preserve it perfectly. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you have doubted that God would take you off the streets and give you a place to stay and a name to call your own and clean clothes and promise to be with you forever. This is why this scripture was written so that you might know how fiercely and tenderly that God loves you. In fact, this isn't the only scripture that speaks of God this way in the Old Testament. In Hosea 11.3, we read this about the Lord speaking of Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. Ephraim is another word for Israel. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. God is a father who nurtures us tenderly, and he rejoices at our first tottering steps of faith towards him. Do you believe that? In Isaiah 49.15, we read this. God, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. It's easier to imagine a woman abandoning her baby than it is to imagine God forsaking us. In Isaiah 66, 13, God says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. God is the one who wants us to run to him when we scrape our knees, when we are sick and up all night, when we can't sleep because we're frightened of the dark. God wants us to come to him. God wants to comfort us. He is our Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. Christian, do you believe that? It's the mark of a Christian that he addresses God as Father. 
And if you still have doubts, he's proven his love to you through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is present on every page of scripture, including this psalm. See, he is the one who makes the invisible God visible and tangible to us, who makes what is unknowable, knowable. He is both the long-suffering Lord who loves Israel, the one in whom we put our trust, and he's also the son of David, the Messianic king who at every turn trusted his father perfectly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus in the truest sense of the word. See, Jesus is not only the object of our prayer, but he's the model for our prayer. In Jesus, the infinite God took on finitude and became human, sharing all of our weaknesses, yet he never doubted his Father's plan for a second. As the Lord God, Jesus mourned over Jerusalem like a loving mother. In Luke thirteen thirty four, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus mourned over Jerusalem as a mother mourns over her wayward child. And Jesus was the one who was ultimately abandoned and orphaned for our sake as God poured out his wrath on the cross that our sins deserved so that we could be the ones that are adopted into God's family, not by right, but by grace, so that we could be the ones that enjoy the privileged status of his heirs of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the hope of Israel. He's our hope. Put your trust in him and follow him. I leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.